Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 10th. We begin with details on the deadly Hamas attack on Israel over the weekend. We catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, for the latest and the Canadian response to the violence. It's been close to 600 days. Hard to believe the war between Russia and Ukraine has lasted this long. We get an update on the conflict from Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert on Eastern European affairs. And finally, it sounds like something based in science fiction. Growing new teeth. We hear details on this fascinating new clinical trial and whether or not dentists should be worried for their jobs with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Yes, over the weekend, Hamas targeted Israel, thrusting the Gaza Strip into a state of war. Joining us to discuss this and the latest developments out of Ottawa is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. Well, I do know that this is something, and I was reading the notes over the weekend, how you and the West Block staff and producers really come together when something breaks like this conflict. You were changing your lineups, uh, getting it ready for Canadians to watch on the West Block. Uh, But a lot of people, I I think, were busy running around through the weekend. It might not be exactly clear on the details. So what do we know uh, led to this renewed conflict between Israel and Hamas? So what we know is that there was an unprecedented um, infiltration by Hamas into Israel, and there was uh, just horrific attacks on civilians. People's homes were invaded. Um, children were kidnapped out of their panic rooms. Uh, a music festival that was happening, like like a big rave near the border, uh, was attacked by Hamas and in that location alone we've heard that there have been over 200 bodies found there are videos online that are deeply disturbing that show people trying to outrun the gunfire and collapsing um, of a young woman whose family has spoken out and said they want people to see the video because they want to get her back of her being um, kidnapped on a motorcycle and begging not to be killed while her boyfriend is marched away with his hands behind his back Uh, the stories are are harrowing they're shocking um, and, and they're really brutal at both the the scale and just the extraordinary violence um, and the way that this was carried out. There's so much of a psychological shock here. For Israel, um, many have said that this is like their 9-11, and and it's guilt to their population. It's actually much higher. And on top of that, you're talking about dozens of hostages that were taken back to Gaza. And Hamas now saying that for every unannounced, uh, unwarned strike that Israel makes on Gaza, they will execute a civilian hostage. Um, So this is a very serious situation. Israel obviously had a massive intelligence failure. We haven't seen anything on this scale uh, since the Yom Kippur War, so we are talking over a generation. And it was a very sophisticated attack by Hamas. Um, It was by air, sea, and land. They had people on paragliders, people on boats, uh, people coming through the border fence, a very large scale of fighters. Um, The Israeli military had to actually fight to take these towns back. So this was not sort of a quick in and out. Um, it, It was a very... Uh, well thought out, 
well-planned attack. And there's a lot of questions for the Israeli government now, not only about how they missed this, but about what comes next. How do you deal with the fact that these hostages are in Gaza? Uh, how do you move forward? And as well, who was behind the attack, which is something they're looking at, and potential connections there to Iran as well. Well, it, it's interesting because it, be new. I was talking to my producer and, uh, you know, Dave McIver, uh, who's one of our honor contributors, and that my whole life, this conflict that we've seen and knowing the different players, uh, you, you break it down, and, and I'm reading that in 2007, uh, you know, Hamas uh, won parliamentary elections and violently seized control of the Gaza Strip. But as far as Hamas is concerned, where do they come from originally, and uh, what is the connection to Lebanon, Mercedes? Hamas is um, the de facto government in Gaza. And as you say, they were elected in 2007. Um, they do govern there. Uh, you know, Gaza is, is not its own state, but they are the de facto government. Uh, they are a they are in Canada considered to be a terrorist organization. In fact, they're listed as a terrorist organization by the Canadian government. And if you heard from Mr. Justin Trudeau last night, he called them a terrorist organization. So it's a bit unusual in that they are a listed terrorist entity in Canada and yet also um, a de facto government. They have connections and backing from Iran. There is money that comes in there. Uh, there are weapons that come in through there and there's concerns about that. There's also has and a lot of people conflate the two uh, with Hamas. Hezbollah is more up in the West Bank, um, but people think that they are the same thing. They're not. This was an attack by Hamas, just to be clear. Um, and the only state backing that we've heard a suggestion of at this point is Iran, not Lebanon. Uh, okay. But there's obviously concern that if Israel reacts uh, in, in a way that is aggressive, and of course they are reacting in a way that's aggressive, it's a question of how far they go. Like, yeah. do they retake the entire Gaza Strip at this point uh, and just reintegrate it back into their territory in response, could that trigger a wider regional war? And in those cases, you're looking at the reactions of Egypt and Lebanon as well. Um, and not to mention how Israel may react towards Iran, depending on how much they believe Iran was involved okay. um, and whether or not they might strike at Iran. Yeah, I was hearing you, they're, they're showing up forces uh, uh, at the Lebanon border as well, but it just seems like maybe a case of Israelis preparing for any instance. Well, and, and the question is, you know, we don't know where all of those things are going. I, I don't know at this point. I mean, it's unfolding so quickly um, what exactly could be their next move. But they have been suffering attacks on more than one front now with rockets. So yeah. the, the Hamas attack was very uh, specific to the geographic area around Gaza. But there has been concern about wider areas getting involved. And I believe some rocket fire from other areas of the country outside of Gaza as well. Are, uh, is the response from Canada at, at this point enough? I know that we're hearing we're hearing about these rallies that happened over the weekend. Uh, you know, with Canadians coming forward, but the government itself. Uh, what have you heard from the federal government? Well, at this point, there hasn't been. Um commitments that are, you know, necessarily military, and I'm not sure that the Israeli military um, needs that much of us, nor that, frankly, we could supply it, given the state of our military. Canada's given a lot to Ukraine. This government has not uh, reinforced the military in terms of, of re-upping the equipment that was given away, but I don't know that we would even have the kind of equipment that the Israelis want. 
what they're certainly looking for and what Canada has been offering is public backing uh, of, of uh, saying, you know, Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, what Justin Trudeau said last night was, was very direct and very strong. That Israel has a right to defend itself, that um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. I mean, it, it was very unequivocal. Uh, there's also the question of the rallies, because there's the rallies that are pro-Israel. There have been uh, rallies in support of the Palestinian people. There have also been some rallies um, where there has been support for the actions of Hamas being justified as evidence that there is there is a right to fight back for an oppressed people. And the Prime Minister and a number of his cabinet ministers have made it very clear that they believe nobody should be celebrating what Hamas did. Um, so there have been police at these rallies saying they will make arrest if there is um, incitement of violence or if there is um, an expression of hate. I don't think we've ever seen that before from the federal government. So that's new, and that part is is interesting to me. Yeah, and Canadians in the region, uh, you know, do we know the numbers of Canadians, and do we know uh, if if they've moved to safety at this point, Mercedes? Uh, I don't know the exact number of Canadians in the region. I know Global Affairs has been looking into that. A lot of the areas in Israel uh, were not attacked, and the question is whether or not Canadians will leave there. There are a lot of Canadians who live in Israel, and there's a lot of Canadians who visit Israel uh, and have close personal connections. There was frustration over the weekend by Canadians who said they were having difficulty getting a hold of the federal government. Flights, as you know, were suspended, so you, you couldn't just get on a plane, an Air Canada plane, and get out. It sounds like El Al, which is the Israeli national National Airline is looking at restarting some flights, uh, but there's certainly been questions about what's going to happen to the Canadians there, whether or not they're going to leave. Uh, I suspect mm-hmm. a number, having spoken to some folks on the ground, are kind of trying to wait and see what what happens next. Um, but there's certainly concern for, for the safety of, of anyone in Israel and in Gaza right now. Well, there's something I want to touch on because we had the deadline of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving has uh, now in the rearview mirror. You had the chance to speak with Francois-Philippe Champagne, Innovation Science and Industry Minister, uh, and get some answers as to what exactly the government's plan is. And what did you hear, Mercedes? Yes, yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure that we got a ton of detail on what happened in those conversations with the grocers, which is what we were trying to figure out, um, because on Last Thursday, um, Minister Champagne and others came out and sort of declared victory and said there was already evidence because there was flyers and coupons. Uh, their discussions with the grocery stores had helped. And we said, okay, but there's flyers and coupons every Thanksgiving. So uh, what is the difference here? What were the prices going to be? How much has it been lowered by? How much further is it going to come down? What does it apply to? Does it only apply to certain kinds of groceries? Um, is it as specific as having a number? Um and what we kind of got from the minister was that, that they're just mostly hoping to up competition before the chains, pardon me, between the chains, but kind of putting a spotlight on it. And one of the things that they're concerned about, it sounds like, is the structure of, of the Canadian grocery market, where you do have very few um, and very large chains that are competing, and that this is uh, creating issues for smaller independent grocers and, and issues of competition throughout the two. For example, the minister said that um, in a mall, what happens when a big grocer comes in is that they will actually set a rule with beside the real estate that no discount stores can go in next to them. So then consumers may not have the choice right there that drives prices down. So he said their goal ultimately is to drive the prices down through both looking at the system, looking at competition, and basically trying to shame, I think, the grocers into some of this, not to mention the threat of, of a, a taxation response 
tax the profits. Uh, and that they, what they really want is to get the grocers to have food down at the level of inflation. What has been found is that while there's not um, huge amounts of increased food costs over inflation, it is about 2% higher than inflation in general. So I guess it's that 2% they could work on. And he also told me that they're looking at the possibility of a foreign grocery chains coming yeah. here, that he has been proactively making phone calls to foreign CEOs and asking what they think of, of potentially entering the Canadian marketplace. I found that surprising when I was hearing that snippet of the conversation, Mercedes, for sure. Obviously, we've heard time and time again, it's all about competition in so many different sectors in our nation. But then the other side is <laughs> the, the you know, pointing at these, you know, the five biggies or, or however many biggies you talk about in the grocery, you know, industry, fine, and what they have to do. Was there any discussion surrounding you know, an affect on the uh, carbon tax or taxing items, for example, single use or snack items, removing the GST. Yeah, I actually asked um, the minister specifically about that because at the end of the day, there's only so much they can really do. I mean, they don't have power as, as the federal government to, to turn around and like regulate how much you're paying for, uh, you know, a box of pasta or a can of beans or your lettuce. Uh, but there are things they could do, things that range from addressing uh, and potentially changing the supply management system in Canada, which is uh, eggs, chicken, um, all dairy, things like that, which are are at some say higher price uh, because we do have a supply management system. I also asked about whether they might consider, for example, uh, alleviating the carbon tax for agricultural producers. For folks who farm, they don't have an electric option. It's not like being in the downtown where you might be able to get yourself a Tesla and there's lots of charging booths. And you live in a house and you charge it when you get home at night. Yeah. Uh, if you're out on combines and tractors and having to drive the, the food, uh, you the product, whether it's, it's grains or cattle to and from market, you really have no choice. You're spending a lot on gas and then that gets passed on to the consumer in the carbon tax. And I asked as well about removing uh, the tax on uh, the GST on, on certain items. And the answer that I got was that nothing's off the table, mm. but also wouldn't commit to taking those actions. I thought that's interesting because, you know, that would be a very fast place for the federal government to start where yeah. they control it. There's a lot of things they don't control with grocers, but they do control taxes that they are deciding um, to, to keep out on items or on particular products. Yeah, very interesting conversation. Thank you uh, very much for spending some time with us, Mercedes, and have a great Thanks rest of the week. Thanks for having me. There's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. And it is hard to believe that 594 days ago it began and continues on. The war between Russia and Ukraine, I think a lot of folks had no indication and no guesses that this would stretch 600 days. I know a, a man in the know is Andrew Rasoulis, Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs, and he joins us once again this morning. Thank you for joining us once again, Andrew. Good morning, uh, Andy. You're welcome. And it is one of these cases that I think that it has been going on so long, and we want to make sure that we revisit it, get updates, and, and find out the, the current situation. So what can you tell us uh, uh, is the latest on this conflict, Andrew? Well, well, very much like your introduction says, it's a war that's going to keep going. Uh, it's definitely going into 2024. There is, you can say, a strategic stalemate that we've been talking about all summer. The Ukrainian offensive that started in June has managed only tactical gains, particularly in the southern area. 
But at the same time, uh, the Russians have also managed tactical gains in the northern part of the front. So both, there's lots of fighting has been going on all the time, but both sides are extremely strong relative to each other, which means that no one has been able to make the strategic breakthrough. And the Ukrainian strategic plan is to try to break through to the Sea of Azov and cut the Russian forces in the south, in, in two parts in the south, and break their land bridge. They have, they're nowhere near that. And so that will go on well into 2024. Everyone is gearing up for the long war. And the big problem now is going to be the resource allocations for the Ukrainians because Gaza has blown up. Okay, so resource allocations, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, the attention, and this is something that happens, I believe, when you, you get into 600 days of conflict are pretty much close. Uh, on the Russian side, uh, they have uh, reached out for help when it comes to uh, North Korea. Do they have the supplies they need? Has that deal, you know, been fruitful for them? Yeah, there, there is. There's now evidence that, that a whole bunch of trains are moving from North Korea into Russia. Uh, they have a small little uh, cor- land corridor of uh, rail traffic. But the Russians are less dependent on foreign uh, assistance than is Ukraine. Ukraine is essentially completely dependent and essentially on American. I mean, there's a bunch of Western European stuff, Canada. But really, without the American critical mass, Ukrainians cannot conduct uh, offensive operations. And my assessment is that if there is problem in Congress, and we're at that cusp now, Mm -hmm. uh, where Congress, once they get a speaker elected, are going to be readdressing the issue of Ukrainian aid, which was faltering uh, last week before this Gaza stuff stuff started, and now you're going to have a competitive uh, allocation of resources to get to Israel and to Ukraine, and which way is the American Congress going to go? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be very, very difficult for Ukraine to sustain offensive operations because of this competitiveness for resources. The Russians, on the other hand, they have their own industry. They have their 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 industry and and uh, is more or less semi independent of foreigners. Yes, they need some chips and so on, yeah. but they get it from China and and they get it they get other things from Iran and so on. But the Russians can generate and they have gone on to basically semi war footing in the last few months. They are prepared for the long war. Now it'll be more of a strategic defense for the Russians too. Yeah. You know? They're gonna be trying to hold the, the Ukrainians, pin them down and wait until everybody gets exhausted. Yeah. Is playing it out. I mean, 600 days later, 594 yeah. to split hairs. Uh, what about yeah. the state, Andrew, of the Black Sea grain deal and safety at the key export port? It is is that holding? Where are we at there? Yeah, so the grain deal, uh, people thought it, that the Turks might have brokered something, uh, and they've been talking, but the Russians have played hardball in that one. They Essentially, the Russians are holding out. They want certain sanctions lifted uh, that from the West that they say are key to Russia implementing that, like uh, insurance on shipping boats, uh, bank transfers. Like they, they want this one particular bank that Russia uses for this stuff to be put on the SWIFT system. Things like that. They're, they're leveraging, and they, there's been, they've been unsuccessful. So consequently, the grain deal is in abeyance. Now, what the Ukrainians have done is they've created their own safe corridors along the coastline. And so they're feeding some of the stuff up the Danube River through Romania and into Europe proper, which is a very slow-moving process. They have managed to get a few ships out through the Bosphorus by hugging the coast, essentially the Romanian coast, and slipping out that way. Uh, So there, there is some movement, but it is not very significant. 
We, we did talk about perhaps attention, you know, uh, moving toward this uh, conflict in Israel and that could hurt uh, the Ukrainian people and, and their cause. What about Russians' involvement in the Middle East? Are, are they going to, you know, uh, switch their attention? Can they afford to with the battle that's happening in Ukraine? Well, no, for the Russians, there's a clear uh, priority. Ukraine is their priority. Uh, and, I mean, this is part of what they call Mother Russia stuff. So, so their priority is there. Now, the degree to which, and they, ha- they have forces in Syria as well, you know, but there's limited stuff. They will uh, play to aggravate the situation, uh, but they have to be careful because they have semi-good relations with Israel as well. So the Russians have to be very, and they are being very careful in terms of how they, they don't want to overplay their hand because they have a balance with Israel. They, Israel does not supply lethal military aid to Ukraine, only humanitarian. And so the, the Russians are being very careful in the Middle East uh, and make sure they don't get out in front. They've also, they're not as strong as they once were when the Soviet Union days in the Middle East. So they've really kind of moved to the background and You've got other players there. I mean, the Iranians are key in the Saudi Arabia. These are the key players. Russians are in the background, but they have, they're playing, I think, a very low-key game. They've called for, for ceasefires. They've called for negotiations. They're not out there favoring anybody. What about support for Vladimir Putin in his own country? Obviously, we, we talked about, you know, maybe some interesting developments over the past handful of months. Uh, but now it seems to have, have been quashed. We, we are not hearing the same amount of chatter surrounding President uh, Vladimir Putin. Are his people still behind him or are there still threats from within to his government? Uh, both. Uh, his people are still behind him. He's managed to put down that revolt, Prigozhin revolt, and, and consolidated his power. So he has succeeded to ride the tiger and remain in power. Are there continuing challenges? Yes, it's a very dynamic situation. Uh, so he is managing competitive factions. But the competitive factions, I keep emphasizing, are not people who want to make peace with Ukraine. They're people who want to be tougher with Ukraine. The people who want to make peace with Ukraine are a very small minority, uh, and they're outliers. So there, I think people who hope that Putin will be overthrown somehow and that we'll have peace, that's not that's an, uh, an erroneous assumption. I think that, the, that there could be someone worse behind Putin. But so, and, and the other thing you remember about the Russian people as a whole, they're not big Democrats. Their experience with democracy is 10 years under Yeltsin, and it wasn't very mm-hmm. good. Uh, they are about law and order. And democracy and, like, like what we put values on, uh, you know, voting, elections, liberties, and, but that's way down the list. I mean, they don't think that's a bad thing, but they're afraid of chaos. And that 10 years under Yeltsin really shocked them. And Putin is seen as the savior of the Yeltsin years. And that image for the, the bulk of the Russians has not worn off yet. And by actually gaining control and, and, and putting Prigozhin, well, uh, you know, in his position, I mean, eliminating him, uh, basically he, uh, the Russian people see Putin as a continuing strongman who can maintain order. And Putin's going into election in 2024. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty much assured he'll get it. But, but there is voting differences there are polls that will be taken so it's not a joke the, the russian election is also an important barometer of putin's strength wow incredible uh, thank you for the update andrew and i think it's important we don't lose focus on this conflict as oh, yeah. another is is just beginning thank you so much you're very welcome andy that is andrew rasoulis fellow at the canadian global affairs institute and an expert in eastern european affairs and now this is the segment i've been waiting for this morning i think it's fantastic Could it be enough 
to put dentists out of business. A new drug is now entering clinical trials, and it appears that it could promote the growth of new teeth in your mouth. Joining us to discuss is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. What do we know about this clinical trial? Wow, this is a really, really interesting trial. So I'm glad you brought it to my attention because it was definitely flying out of my uh, outside of my radar because I am not a dentist. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, and, to your, and to your point, this is not going to put dentists out of business. This will, if anything, give them more business. So what the story is, is this a Japanese group of scientists found out um, why some people uh, don't get teeth, uh, at all like so there's a genetic disorder where uh, humans do not grow teeth at all uh, and they looked at the genetics of this looked at what would be the signal to do this or not do this sorted out that there actually is a gene that makes a protein which actually suppresses tooth uh, growth huh. they started working with mice it started working. They started working with ferrets. Apparently, ferrets have teeth like humans, and uh, and they're having success. So in the last five years, they've sorted out the actual genetics of this and a protein and how to block that protein. So this is quite, quite exciting in the news of teeth. <laughs> news of teeth. And I'm wondering, you know, I guess it depends on how they engineer it. But, you know, to a certain extent, for example, with my teens, in case you're wondering, braces are not cheap. Dr. J, yeah, uh, would, I know you that. know, <laughs> if this if this could very much help people who you know have issues not just with growth but uh, you know uh, making a better alignment of teeth, I, I think the possibilities seem fantastic. Well, yes, I mean, uh, in humans, we have a huge slew of of issues with teeth, whether it be yeah, too many teeth, not enough teeth, them coming in crooked. Uh, if it's, uh, you have bad cavities, uh, you know, the notion of pulling a tooth is really what we try to avoid. But if we could pull a tooth and then regrow a new tooth, there'd be no trouble. If we could, you know, pull out crooked teeth and grow straight teeth, yeah, this is a whole other world and would really, really change the world of dentistry, I'm sure. Okay, I know that this is something we've talked about in the past, but if you can break it down for us, the whole clinical trial thing, and you mentioning ferrets yeah. and rodents, for example, uh, what is the chain as far as bringing a clinical trial uh, to, to, to market? How long does something like take, and what are, what are the steps in the process? Yeah, so right now, uh, like looking at uh, the data they presented, they've been at this already five years in animal models with success right so i guess the first thing is you're you're trying things out in a test tube or in a lab then you put it into animal models and you try to pick an animal that's closest to humans uh whether that be you know commonly monkeys are used sometimes mice uh guinea pigs all kinds of different animals uh once you have success with that you would broker your initial human trials and this typically would be in humans in most need of uh, whatever you're trying to research. And, and uh, these are so-called uh, phase one clinical trials. These are very crude trials. Try to get a feeling for does it work? <laughs> Approximate dosing, is there any harm in that? And then it walks through phase one to phase two, three, four, and uh, fifth uh, uh, phase clinical trials are when it's absolutely open to all of the public, when the drug is very, very well established. So they're already projecting out in these trials. They've had success in animal models, like very, very good success. But yet in humans, the first rollout in theory in a commercial product would be no earlier than 2030, 
right? So five years. <laughs> like the first human trials were started, they're projecting out July of 2025 with maybe a, a product commercial left in 2030. So this is an incredibly long, arduous process of working through all the phases of clinical trials in humans. And it's all about safety for the most part and trying to sort out, does this work? Is there any you know, dark side to this in humans that we haven't seen in animal models? Incredible, incredible stuff. And this could change, you know, I, I would think... Uh, those folks who have struggled with the cost, maybe. I mean, obviously the cost, when we talk about dentists, are much more. Your thoughts, and I don't want to politicize it, Dr. J, but I, we talked about it on the program many times how it's called dental health, yet yes. dental care is not under the umbrella of, for example, Alberta health care. Do you think the model needs to be looked at? Well, <laughs> welcome to Alberta. Um, so certainly uh, in other provinces, other countries, uh, this would all be a universal uh, health. Like this would, all of this would be under, and we can talk about uh, rehab, uh, physio massage mm-hmm. therapy. We can talk about mental health, psychologists. We can talk about dental health. We can talk about ophthalmologists and optometrists, etc. Yes, like, you know, if you're talking about universal health, it should include all of those. Uh, but we're the Wild West, and uh, we, you know, it's very much siloed out into what is reasonable for universal and what is definitely falls outside the periphery. Uh, and yet, that, that's very political, absolutely. Yeah. But we're we're far from a universal health right yeah. now in Alberta, and I think we're moving farther and farther away from that for sure. In the meantime, fascinating topic, perhaps growing teeth in our own mouths in the future. Thanks for your time, Dr. J. We appreciate it. You betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.